and welcome to the Hear It podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Roberts, and I'll be speaking with guests about their work, research and ideas on better engaging young people. I really hope you like it. This week, we're joined by Jim Dickinson, Associate Editor of Wonky, where he explores all manner of issues impacting students, governance and students' unions. A former long-standing director at the National Union of Students, Jim has also worked as CAO at the Students' Union at UEA in Norwich, served as governors at the FE and HE level and the voluntary sector. He's also a fellow at the Royal Society of Arts and reliably, your bio tells me you're a huge fan of the Eurovision Song Contest. Jim, thank you so much for coming on the Hear It podcast today. Uh, Great to be here, Rebecca. Thanks. Um, so tell us a little bit about how you've gone from being at the heart of student life and policies and politics to writing about it at Wonky. You know, I sort of pitched up in uh, university in the heady days of Britpop in the mid-90s. And I was at a multi-campus institution, right? And I was quite upset that the kind of satellite campus I was on, our Freshers' Week, consisted of uh, a tequila karaoke night. And that was about <laughs> it. And I was furious about this. So I decided to find a way to rant and rave about this through formal channels, formal democratic channels in the student union rather than just sort of rant about it. And then a couple of months later, you know, the other thing that happened, these are the things that radicalise you. I got my first ever essay back at uni and there was there was a comment on it that said you'd have done better if you'd have spent less time working behind the bar one that didn't really help me learn for my next essay but two I had no choice but to work behind that bar because I was you know from a family where you sort of need to work your way through you need to meet the costs so you cut and shot those two things together and then there's a sort of you know a career in student politics that I think unlike for lots of people whose career in student politics ends when they stop being a student uh, it just sort of carries on. So I worked at the National Union of Students for a decade. It was my name on the risk assessment for the big demo in 2010 that all went wrong. And uh, then I went to effectively into rehab for a few years in, in Norwich, working at uh, the University of East Anglia uh, at the Student Union there, which was fantastic. And now I get to talk to think about and write about students and student unions and universities all week long uh, with Wonky. And it's no secret that the pandemic has put a great deal of pressure on universities as institutions, but also for students, like we can't underestimate the impact it's had. It feels a little bit like they've been forgotten about by the government, doesn't it? Do you know, funnily enough, about five minutes before we started recording this morning, a Manchester Evening News alert pops up with an interview with uh, University's Minister Michelle Donnellan, specifically arguing the opposite to that. And I'm like, I'm not sure, Michelle. But yeah, I mean, there's no doubt that students feel pretty forgotten about. You know, I do think there's a few, you know, there's a few angles to that. There's a tendency, I think, for universities to think about the things that they run and provide. And there was certainly a lot of discussion sort of last August, for example, about what would be possible in terms of teaching? You know, would it be online or offline? How much teaching could happen on campus? This kind of idea of blended learning. But there was much less discussion about what students do with the other, you know, 120 odd hours a week that they're away. That's classic, look at it through the wrong end of the telescope stuff for me, because a focus on students and the student experience, either from, you know, national politicians or civil servants or from university managers, would mean thinking about what the week was going to be like in the middle of a pandemic with a load of uh, restrictions. Similarly, for instance, 
you know, lots of people have been talking about the digital divide in schools, right? There's been a big thing about, you know, how do we make sure that laptops are sent out to schools and school kids? But hardly any focus on that, you know, nationally from government. And we know now from lots of surveys that there are lots of students who don't have the broadband or have the space at home or have the technology to be able to take part in the stuff that has pivoted online this year because of the pandemic. But I I think the most important bit is the economic bit. I'm doing some digging the other week into a claim from Rishi Sunak that the government has helped the poorest households in society. And I was thinking, student households, actually, where they study away from home, are pretty poor. So I dug into the figures that the Treasury uses, their DWP figures, and I find that because of an old methodology, students in student households have tuition fee loans counted as income rather than expenditure. (laughs) This idea that students have forgotten isn't just a kind of political thing, which is about where a government at a given point, you know, focuses its effort, where it thinks it's going to get its votes from and so on. It's pretty institutionalised in, you know, the kind of machinery of government that makes these sorts of assessments. And the reality, therefore, is that students have been kind of both politically and institutionally forgotten since the start of the pandemic. Yeah, I think it was a comment in in one of your articles and you said that it's almost like government see universities as one big boarding school. And I guess if you're (laughs) from a family, (laughs) it's like, well, you know, you get paid to go off. It's just the reality for so many young people is just so different. Yeah. And and look, just on that, I talk a lot about what I call Harry Potter HE, right? So there's only really two sorts of higher education in the minds of ministers. There's a student nurse who's probably between the age of 35 and 45 living at home, juggling a family, you know, juggling family responsibilities and so on. And then outside of health training in universities, there's Harry Potter, who goes to university at the start of term, reappears at the end of term, and, uh, you know, he's in these kind of, you know, dreamy spires locations, and, you know, he's eating downstairs from their college or hall of residence uh, every day. And none of it bears any, you know, relation to the vast majority of students and the student experience who are, you know, increasingly precarious, certainly during the pandemic when there's been no part-time work, their kind of situations have been fairly precarious, uh, they're juggling lots of other responsibilities, they're certainly not on campus most of the time, and so on. Part of our problem is that, that again, both decision-makers in in both politics and kind of administration think back to their student experience when one in 20 young people went into university and no wonder that the decision making doesn't properly take into account the realities of you know what it's like to be a student in 2021. I suddenly got that interview of Rishi Sunak in school talking about Mexican coke flashing up as a reminder of how little realistic engagement of young people the government has. Anyway I digress. Um there's been a lot of discussion about fees and whether students should have some money back versus universities still need to pay stuff. And I guess, you know, we talked a little bit before about kind of how the media portray young people and students. And there is a bit of lack of sympathy. Well, at least they're getting something. I mean, you recently wrote about the reports that the Sutton Trust shared about the student yeah. experience and a reminder that education is not this transactional process. It, it's more than just, you know, your lessons in, in a lecture hall, isn't it? Well, look, look on, on this kind of student experience and fees thing, 
Um, I was listening into a debate yesterday, uh, which was actually about students and value for money out of higher education this year. Uh, four people on the panel, none of them were students, of course. God forbid you would ask a student to reflect on whether or not they felt they were getting value for money. <laughs> you know, it's not like any of them have got any views on this this year or anything. But anyway, I'll set that aside. One of the vice chancellors on the panel said something really interesting. Um, he said that, look, uh, students have been getting four their tuition fee, their teaching and their assessment. And so as such, they've got everything that their tuition fee was supposed to pay for. Now, I'm not sure that most people, for example, that work in, you know, I don't know, marketing uh, around higher education would recognise the idea that the only thing that's being marketed in exchange for the tuition fee that tumbles in is the teaching and the assessment. In fact, it's everything, isn't it? It's the location. It's the wider experience. It's the clubs and societies. It's the facilities on campus. There's no doubt that physical facilities and this kind of wider experience have value and as a result, there's no doubt that students feel shortchanged. Now, whether or not they have a case kind of, you know, technically and legally is one thing. But kind of morally, emotionally and ethically and politically, there's no doubt they feel shortchanged from their experience. And I guess the thing that I would say is where I do think it's transactional is as follows. When I was a kid, right, we used to get dragged off on package holidays to, you know, the Costa del God knows where. And obviously, in every photo in the brochure, there was bright sunshine. And some years we'd go to the Costa del Nowhere and it would rain. And that was tough luck. You can't get a refund off the back of that, right? But you know what? Sometimes we'd go and the swimming pool wasn't finished or the food gave you food poisoning. Uh, you'd end up trapped in your room because of building work or whatever. And in those circumstances, there would be financial recompense. And so, look, should there be some level of financial recompense from someone somewhere? It's really hard to explain to the person on the Clapham omnibus why that wouldn't apply. <laughs> Once you've got the person on the Clapham omnibus agreeing, and certainly YouGov polling suggests that students should be recompensed somehow, then, you know, that tells its own story. As ever, the impact of predicted grades and student finance is not an equal one. Do you think this past year will have impacted the widening participation effort? What do we know about big economic downturns? Big economic downturns always generate increased demand for education. And this one appears to be no different to uh, the financial crash of, you know, 2007, 2008. In some ways, though, what we shouldn't do is let that mask and obscure what then is required in order to support a bigger cohort and a more diverse cohort of students entering higher education. So, you know, it's not that long ago that, you know, regulators and government were really interested in access, but not so much in participation, you know, supporting students to do well once they get to university. And, and I guess what I'd say is, do I believe that right now universities properly understand the cohort of students students that's about to enter their campuses and courses? No, I don't. And unless we get a clear sense of what those students have been through, those, you know, school students and college students, what their needs are, you know, where their mental health is at, the level of kind of, you know, study practice they've got and so on, unless we've got a clear sense of that, actually the danger is we set them up to fail. And, and you know, the other thing that is extraordinary about in particular, the English higher education system is once you're in it, it's really, really hard to leave without there being significant kind of sunk costs and loss. 
It's not easy to bounce straight out and to, you know, wriggle out of an accommodation contract or whatever. So I think the pandemic in some ways generates good news on student numbers generally and access from disadvantaged backgrounds specifically. But we do have to have this focus on making sure that we support a bigger and more diverse group of students when they get here. And how do universities go about off the value of higher education? Now you talked about that panel. Like, What, what do you think lies ahead? Are we going to see really aggressive marketing tactics? I mean, how do we how do we come out of this? There's the $20 million question. I mean, look, let me give you a practical example, actually. So there's obviously at the moment a really difficult debate going on about what to promise students. Really important to not over-promise, but also important to not under-promise, right? So this time last year, Cambridge University was actually the first out of stocks turning around and saying that it wouldn't run any of its lectures in person. All of its lectures would be online. And so there's a really interesting debate going on at the moment amongst both kind of teachers and people who are worried about finances and recruitment about, you know, what should we say about large group lectures when the dregs of the pandemic and a third wave will still be kicking in? I was talking to a group of actual students yesterday who were saying, actually, in your first year as an undergraduate, it doesn't matter whether a lecture is online or offline, a lecture is really, really unhelpful because it's pretty impersonal. There's not a lot of interaction. There's not a lot of ability for you for you to go and kind of interrogate the subject that you're looking at. And they were saying what they would prefer is whether it's online or offline, a whole series of kind of facilitated group activities. And when I cut and shot that then with what I assume is true from, you know, all of the polling data about the state of the mental health of students that are about to join university, what that says to me is dump the debate about whether lectures get dumped online or not in in people's first year next year. Dump the lectures, shift your lectures to second and third year undergraduate programmes and do something that's much more supportive and transitiony for students in their undergraduate first year. My answer on this is the way you deliver value is you listen to the voices and needs of the people that are entering the place rather than just selling them the product that you think you've got. Are there any campaigns or initiatives that you think do a particularly good job at engaging people? Oh God, I saw this question and I thought, I've no idea. I've not seen anything for months. I'd say a couple of things about this. So quite tragically, actually, there's a number of quite interesting youth-focused and youth-led charities that have collapsed over the past year. And controversially, I won't be shedding a tear for some of those initiatives. And that's partly because uh, one of the things that I come across a lot is a lot of kind of traditional brands, both in, you know, in the very much in the higher education space, but, you know, more broadly that kind of float, float around higher education, trying to adapt themselves to young people without kind of, you know, involving them, listening to them and actually putting them at the heart of decision making. And then separately, there's a load of kind of fair peripheral youth-led stuff that doesn't have the money or the budget or the cachet or I think what I'd say is the brands that are around that genuinely look sound and feel youth-led particularly from a sort of storytelling perspective are the ones that I think are the most powerful so here's an example I'm doom scrolling my way through Twitter yesterday afternoon and I came across a piece on vice.com which you know is terrific most days that told me all about this phenomenon of young people who haven't got a lot of money, who quite like diversity, 
hanging out, spending hours on end, hanging out at their local airport. <laughs> and that this is becoming a, a trend. And, you know, there are lo- lots of voices about why that is an amazing place to be. And you can sort of hang out and reinvent yourself and hang out with very with lots of diversity and be quite aspirational about some of the people that are coming through the airport. Some interesting reflections on drug use. But also, you know, we can't afford pubs. We can't afford clubs. Absolutely fascinating. And it's that stuff, I think, the stuff that tries to get under the skin of the lives that you know Gen Z and young people more generally are leading that I think is the most impressive stuff, particularly where fairly traditional organisations build that right into the heart of their decision-making. So aside from reading, Wonky, and your podcast, are there any particularly good books or podcasts or newsletters that you'd recommend we check out? One of my go-to listens over the past few months has been What Adults Don't Tell You Before You Adult, which uh, is is a fantastic podcast. You know, it's worth checking out from Audiobox. And uh, what's most extraordinary about it is... Two things, really. One, you know, the content is quite good fun. And here I am in my mid-40s, still learning how to adult uh, in a way that, I, you know, I don't mind, you know, sort of talking about and admitting. So, you know, some of the content is genuinely useful for me. But perhaps more importantly is listening to young people go through the process of trying to compare some of the stuff they do and some of their values with some of these kind of other behaviours and so on. And, and kind of sifting through the process of deciding whether or not to kind of ape a generation that they don't feel they have a lot in common with or to kind of reject some of the behaviours of a generation they don't feel they have a lot in common with. And, you know, that whole process, I think, particularly, you know, my line of work where I'm thinking about universities where the cliche is people enter as children and leave as adults. And, you know, I don't think it was true ever, and I certainly don't think it's true now. But nevertheless, that idea of kind of rapid development, as I say, comes so really strongly in that that podcast. So that's, you know, worth a listen. Adding that to my list now so I feel like I'm prepared for life. For listening to the Hear It podcast, you can find links to everything we talked about in the show notes. If you'd like to get in touch, you can find us on Twitter at the Hear It podcast or threadandfable.com. And if you've enjoyed the show today, please drop us a rating wherever you listen to your podcasts.